This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The one-two got him swinging. Kevin Gosman looks like he is getting hot. And Gosman to the plate, and he just brings the heat. And he swings and misses there. Swing and a miss, three pitches. That's a Gosman special right there. He leads the world in three-pitch strikeouts. Big swing and a miss, 97 up. Shaking his head, talking to himself. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, May 26th, 2022. Got a lot to talk about. We're going to start by reviewing the biggest contracts of last winter. The guys like Javier Baez and Max Scherzer, everybody who got deals over $100 million, kind of see how that's working out so far. In some cases, great. Also, there are other cases. Uh, we're going to move on to the three batter minimum. I don't know if you've noticed this. The Red Sox look great again. There's some interesting reasons behind it. The Mariners look like not so great. Last place in the American League West. We got to talk about that and kind of get into the uh, the book on Vladimir Guerrero Jr., how he's being attacked differently and what that means for his game. We will, of course, get into guys we should talk about more. I'm pretty excited for my guy because he's almost 35 years old. You just don't get into the quote-unquote old guys anymore but we'll get back to that matt we have to start i think with the infielders in texas who got a combined half billion dollars Corey seager and marcus simeon um seager signed for 10 years 325 simeon signed for seven years 175 it hasn't been great has it seager has been slightly above league average which is fine simeon's just been like absolutely brutal and there are i think are reasons but I also want to point out, like at the top for all these guys, it would hardly be the first time that someone goes to a new home with a giant contract and gets off to kind of a lousy start. Like I'm thinking about Francisco Lindor. I'm thinking about a million other guys. And obviously it doesn't always happen. Max Scherzer, who we'll talk about in a second, has been fantastic. But this is not an unprecedented thing, at least in my experience. No, not at all. And I, you know, it's there's always the issue with free agents, right? Especially the ones who end up getting the most money, because almost always that means they're coming off a great year. Right, you don't get a huge free agent contract if uh, you're not coming off a great year, and it kind of goes back to some of like the SI cover jinx. Well, it's not like a jinx; it's just like you kind of have nowhere to go but down. So you're starting from the fact that like a, they're almost certainly not going to be as good as they were the year before. So you got to temper those expectations, and then there's always also like with any player in performance, there's extremely wide error bars, right? And like you mentioned, Seager, Corey Seager is kind of not at the high end of like that bell curve, but he's like somewhere like kind of in the middle within like a reasonable expectation. He's probably, you know, within like one standard deviation of the median projection. The problem is when you get with guys like Marcus Semyon, who are just like so far off and it's like so disastrous where you're like, oh no, where do we go from here? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you kind of brought up that sort of SI coveraging spark because you also sort of described baseball writing in the month of April. Like you're only really going to point out guys who are doing something really cool and interesting, which of course they can't do all season long. And then it's like, oh, why did I write that guy or team? 
was so good. Specific to Simeon, he has had one of the weirdest shaped careers I think I can remember, right? Because like he was in Oakland and he had four very similar, okay-ish, like fine, kind of okay years. And then that last year in Oakland, 2019, was fantastic, right? MVP caliber. Uh, the next year in Oakland, the short in 2020, he was hurt for a little bit. Not very good. Goes to Toronto on a one-year deal. Fantastic. Second in there, third in the MVP last year. And now he looks essentially unplayable. And I, I kind of bring up that history to say, you could tell me like from this point forward, the remainder of his career, any outcome, and I would believe it. <laughs> if you tell me he's going to win three MVPs, fine. If you tell me they're going to have to cut him in a year, I think I'd, I'd believe that too. There's just... There's no trend here. And so, so for those who have not been paying close attention to Marcus Simeon, Marcus Simeon hit 45 home runs last year. It is now almost June. He has zero home runs. It's almost, it's like, it's hard to believe. Um, I kind of looked, I mean, I, we, I talked about him a couple, about a month ago, and we talked about guys we're worried about. And I'm sort of sad, sad to say that, like, uh, I was seemed to be right about that one, where I basically said that even in his, his history of good years, and in, you know, 2019 and 2021, he was top three in AL MVP voting in, in each of the last full seasons. He His expected stats were never great, so it always felt like, oh, maybe, like, what is it that, like, he's sort of overperforming here? And then this year, his, like, hard hit rate has been way down. I looked under the hood a little bit. It's 14 fastballs especially. He used to, basically, in 2019 and 2021, his expected selecting against them was, like, you know, 570, 580. This year, it's 346. Like, he would he destroyed 14 fastballs, and this year... He's not, and I don't know the reason for that, but like, you know, yeah, the, the ball's behaving differently. I get that, but it's like, it's just, he's just not making the kind of quality contact that he used to, and it's glaring. Yeah, I agree totally. I think it's a couple things. What you said about the contact makes sense. I also think his sort of profile of good, not elite power is maybe more affected by these external influences. And part of that is, you know, is the ball flying or not? But also uh, think about the various home parks he's had over the last year. Last year, the Blue Jays started in Dunedin, which was a great hitter's park, and he crushed. And they went to Buffalo, which was a great hitter's park, and he crushed. And they went to Toronto, which is like a good hitter's park, and he wasn't quite as good. And now he's in like an absolute cavern in Texas. And I think that plus the ball not going, you know, where you might think it would is kind of killing him. But it's okay. It's it's he only turns 32 in a couple months. I'm sure the rest of the contract will work out fine. All right. The next guy I want to talk about is Chris Bryant, who scored one of, let's say, the most divisive contracts of the offseason. Seven years, $182 million. He's been hurt. He does not have a home run. He has only played in 17 games. He was out for a while with a back injury, came back for like a minute. He is now back on the disabled with list with a back injury. And I remember we talked about this contract at length, right? We were all very confused because you're trying to balance two disparate facts, right? You're trying to balance like, great, they went out and they signed a star for a team that you know doesn't usually like play at that end of the market, and this is great, and it's good for their fans, and Chris Bryant wants to be there, and that's wonderful. And on the other hand, it's just, what? What are you doing? Why, why are you doing this? The team is now in last place. He was never going to be like the guy to change their fortune. Like I remember last year when the Giants acquired him, it was like, this is a great fit. you got a really good team. You could use like a quality veteran bat who can play a few spots. Like That might be the guy who puts you over the top. And it didn't work out that way. But the idea made a ton of sense. Uh, but to commit to a guy who pretty clearly seemed like he was already on a decline for seven years, and now you throw an unexpected back injury on top of it, as usual, I never have any idea what the Rockies are doing, but at least Connor Joe is super fun to watch. I diverge a little bit. Like, like yes, Chris Bryant has not been as good as he was in 2016 when he won MVP, 
but he's actually been consistently good for the last few years. Just like people kind of thought, oh, he he wins rookie of the year his first year, and then he wins MVP the second year. And it's like, oh, this guy is you know going to the Hall of Fame, and then he just settled into being instead of being like that, you know. 145 OPS plus kind of guy he was in the beginning of his career he became like kind of like a 120 130 guy which he's which with the exception of the pandemic shortened season he's pretty consistently he's been pretty consistently been that guy so like he's been a consistently good player just not a great player as an aside I recently saw someone post a list I think it was during a Rockies broadcast of like players who've won rookie of the year followed by MVP rookie of the year one year then MVP the next and you would almost think it would that would be like a sign of like all time greatness, but the players who've done it is actually like a pretty. It's like it's Chris Bryant, Ryan Howard, Dustin Pedroia, and I forgot who the fourth one is, but it was like a surprisingly underwhelming list. It almost like it was like I was like wondering why that would be, and because you would think that would be like an indicator of you know inner circle Hall of Fame. I wonder if it, it, it probably is because they were all ended all ended up all being older rookies, so basically like they debuted closer to like what their theoretical prime was. Yeah, I don't know. Just a, just a thought. But anyway, that, that that kind of struck me. But don't you think the contract is that they're they're paying him like he's the great player that they wanted 6 years ago. Like that's what yeah. they think he is. I think that's the problem. I think I think that's part of the problem. I also think as you said like, you know, he's a great fit on a team trying to win that like could use someone who could fill in at third base and like play third base and left field and like you know, or first base and, like fill in where need be. Like he I think I described him when we talked about it sort of like He's basically kind of like what Ben Zobris was in his prime, which is a very good player. But Ben Zobris, when he was a free agent in you know, 2016, granted he was older, but got like a four-year deal for like $60 million, which was, you know, seemed like right at the time. And given the age, I would have expected Brian to get more than that. But I don't think he's a superstar anymore. Freddie Freeman got six years and $162 million. And I think somehow he's been underrated, like how great he's been for the Dodgers. Um, he's kidding 297, 389, 461. And I was digging into some really fascinating splits of his, which I plan to write about at some point. If you look at him with the bases empty this year, he has been straight up bad, right? Bases empty, 202, 262, 283, right? That's an OPS of 545. With runners on base, he has an OPS of over 1,200, and what's really interesting to me is when you look into what's happening beyond that, it's uh, it's the strikeouts, right? With nobody on base, he's striking out 18% of the time, which isn't bad. That's better than average. With runners on base, he's striking out 5% of the time. And what I'm really trying to figure out is, is you know, this is like the most analytical forward progressive team in baseball. Is he just succeeding because of the most old school shorten up on not, not two strikes, I guess, but shorten up with runners on base and just get the run home. Like, it can't just be that because he's also slugging 730 <laughs> with runners on base. So I know it's not just that, but that is like a truly enormous split. And it's kind of blown my mind a little bit. I, I don't even know what to say about Freddie Freeman anymore. My, my appreciation for him grows each year. I think that as a player, I think that I understand why the Braves did kind of like did what they did and that like it probably sort of sets them up better for a long term because Olsen's a lot younger and. But like Freddie Freeman is, he's that. I think he actually is, he's playing himself into the Hall of Fame the last couple of years. And um, fun hitter to watch, makes contact, tough out. And the Dodgers with him and now Mookie Betts back playing like the you know, peak Mookie Betts, even with all the guys who are kind of underperforming, they look as, as you know, dominant as ever. Yeah, I think the thing we don't talk about enough with that is that it seemed at the time when they signed him like it was an embarrassment of riches, right? It's like, oh, this team that's so great, they literally went out and added Freddie Freeman. Like, oh, what are they going to do? And now they've got two great first basemen. And it turns out he's actually been vitally important because Max Muncy has been awful. 
and Justin Turner has been awful. Like, I wonder if Muncie is still feeling the effects of the elbow injury that he had last year because he could not be your starting first baseman right now, you know? And the fact remains that if they did not have Freeman, I don't want to say they'd be in trouble, but it's not just like a nice toy to have. He's been crucially important. All right, the next guy, I think another divisive free agent over the winter, Javier Baez, six years, $140 million for the tremendously disappointing uh, Detroit Tigers. I don't know if you saw former Tigers reliever Joel Zumaya went off on Instagram about his old team. He's just furious, and I think he's right to be disappointed because a lot of people, myself included, thought that they were turning the, tor- the corner, um, but it just hasn't happened, and part of it is Baez. And when you look at his stats, he's having a really weird season. So he hasn't been good, right? Straight up, has not been good. He has a 63 weighted runs created plus, where 100 is average. So he's been considerably below average. But the shape of it is really weird. You'd think if he was having a bad season, I think the first thing you'd think of is, well, strikeout rate's gotten totally out of control. Not true. His strikeout rate is the best it's been since 2018. He's just not hitting it hard. He's putting it on the ground. Uh, even the defense for him has been kind of a mess. You know, it's it's just he was never one that I was a huge fan of in the first place. And it just has not gotten off to a good start. But that's true of the entire Tigers organization right now. Uh, yeah, it's I, I like Baez. I think he brings a unique element. And there's not a lot of players like him. But he like he has to reach a certain, you know, you always know it's going to be pretty high variance because he's so reliant on balls in play. And at least on the on offense. And so, like, um, it's when he's hitting like this, which he has done at certain parts of his career. I mean, he's had years where he's, you know, finished in the top of MVP voting with like a 130 OPS plus, other years where he's below 100. So, like, there's definitely, it goes, it goes all over the place. The thing I've noticed about him is not that he was ever a big stolen base guy, but base running has been a part of his game. He has zero stolen bases this year, and his sprint speed is the lowest it's ever been in his career. So I wonder what's going on there because that's also like it's been a big part of his game. And so you take that out when he's a guy that's already, you know, he's a guy that relies on a lot of intangibles to bring value. Like he definitely is a, oh, it doesn't really show up in the box score kind of guy. So when you take one of those elements out of the game, it definitely hurts his value. Next on our list here is going to be Max Scherzer. Three years, $130 million. I kind of feel like you're getting exactly what you would have expected out of Max Scherzer, right? Because if you'd have said to me before the season, like, what are the two things you think will happen with Max Scherzer this year? I probably would have said, well, when he's on the mound, he's going to be great. He's like an all-time inner circle Hall of Famer, uh, not even just one of the best pitchers of his generation. I truly believe he's one of the best pitchers to ever live, and he's been fantastic, right? And you look at his starts, eight starts, 254 ERA, 11 strikeouts per nine. But also, I'd say he'd probably get hurt at some point because he's 37 years old and he has a recent injury history. And that's exactly what's happened. I don't remember, Matt, if you've seen the recent ETA for him, um, but he's going to be out for a couple of more weeks, I think, till about the All-Star break, which sort of tracks with exactly what you were getting. So I don't even know if you can phrase this as a disappointment rather than um, meeting expectations. And if it's not too serious and he's back in the second half, I imagine Mets fans will be perfectly happy with that. I mean, he did have that sort of like dead arm at the end of that last year. So no one can be surprised by the injury, not to mention his age. He has been pretty – he's made 20, at least 27 starts in every season going back to 2008. So, like, I mean, 2020 notwithstanding, every full season going back to 2008. So, like, it wasn't necessarily a foregone conclusion. But, yes, no one can be surprised by a 37-year-old pitcher getting hurt. I think any Mets fan, when they saw he got hurt, like, oh, it's yes, obliques are annoying and they take a while, but it's, it's, not, an, it's not an elbow or a shoulder, I'll take it. And as soon as you heard it was an oblique, it was like, at least the all-star break because these things always take longer than people think. The Mets have managed to continue winning so far without him and DeGrom. So 
I think it's if he and DeGrom can ever get back on getting the rotation at the same time, Mets fans will be thrilled, especially given the sort of cushion they've been able to build. Robbie Ray got five years, $115 million. Uh, we're going to do like a whole segment on the Mariners in a minute. So I don't know if we want to go too deeply on Robbie Ray here. He's been okay. Not great. He's actually looked better recently. His most recent start against the uh, A's, 10 strikeouts and one walk. Um, you know, his velocity started out low to start the year. He was walking people. He's looked better. Like I'm not actually that worried about him, even though the early returns haven't looked that great. I mean, he's walking a little more people. It's still better than it was at his, his like Arizona years, which is what was always holding him back. But last year, his walk rate was like crazy low for his standards. And you kind of knew that was going to be a little bit unsustainable. And so like, I'm, I'm not, I think he's, he's, he's similar to what I like, what I kind of go back with like Corey Seager, where it's like, it's not great, but it's very much within like a reasonable expectation, just on, on the slightly like on the disappointing side, but not like, this is not Marcus Simeon where it's like, oh my goodness, how bad has this guy been? It's just like, oh, he's been not quite as good as we hoped. How do you like the neat trick that the Blue Jays pulled by letting Robbie Ray sign in Seattle for five years and 115, turning around and signing Kevin Gausman for five years and 110? Oh my God, he's been so good. Uh, he has 65 strikeouts and five walks. I will say, I'm not entirely buying the idea that... Um, you know, you look at his home run per fly ball rate, like years, it's consistent, 11%, 12%, 13%. This year, it's 1%. <laughs> He's allowed one home run. I feel like that's not going to last. But he um, is the slam dunk American League Cy Young right now, I think. And he just does look fantastic for a Blue Jays team that hasn't actually hit that well yet. He has the lowest walk rate in the, in the league among all qualified starting pitchers. And by Fangraph's version of war, he not only is number one amongst all starting pitchers in Fangraph's war, he's number one by literally one war. He's at 2.7, the next highest pitcher, who is going to be my guy I'm going to talk about this this uh, this week. Spoil, spoiler alert on that, is at 1.7. So yes, if, if the season ended today, Kevin Gossman is your American League Cy Young and stands to be the favorite as of now. Carlos Correa signed for three years and $105 million, but nobody really believes that because he's probably going to opt out after one year, assuming he's healthy and productive. Uh, it did not get off to a really good start, actually, there. And he was injured and missed some time, but he's looked a lot better lately. And if you look at the underlying numbers, um, they're trending in the right direction. Actually, his overall numbers are pretty decent. He's been 22% above league average, which is pretty good. He is, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but like, fifth or sixth in hard hit rate like he's hitting the ball harder than he ever has before and the twins have been somewhat surprisingly a first place team i think in part because the rest of that division is like a total mess i don't know that i fully believe into what the twins are doing uh pitching wise but correa has been great they had him drop into their laps out of nowhere and aside from the slow start i mean i think he's he's looking like he's going to be everything you would have envisioned yeah the, the tricky one with this is right is just that he left the Astros, and it was sort of like, oh, my goodness, the Astros really need a shortstop. What are they going to do? Maybe they should have signed him or Trevor Story. Like, oh, they needed a shortstop. And as it turned out, the Astros, I mean, I don't think they expected Jeremy Pena to be this good, but clearly they were comfortable letting Correa walk and not even going out for, like, a, a second-tier shortstop on the free agent market and giving the job to a rookie who, in our latest Rookie of the Year poll on MLB.com on the site today, finished first. Jeremy Pena finished first in the AL Rookie of the Year voting and would very – clearly i think be the al rookie of the year if the season ends today and it sort of colors our perception i think a little bit of correa because correa has been good and kind of been with the but what the twins would have hoped for when he's been on the field but if you're looking at it from like taking a step back you're just kind of like well the guy who replaced him has been better i'm not sure he's going to be better in aggregate when the season when all is said and done this season but he's been good enough that it doesn't feel like 
a big loss for the Astros. And I feel like fairly or not, that just kind of colors our perception of Correa in this moment. Nick Castellanos got five years and $100 million from the Phillies. Matt, I don't know if you saw the play last night that sort of encapsulated the entire Phillies season. Uh, J.T. Armido had the ball. He threw it to uh, – the ball got away from him. He threw it to second. got past the second baseman. It got past the shortstop. And then somehow also got past the center fielder. And I bring that up because it had nothing to do with Nick Castellanos or Kyle Schwarber or Alec Bohm or Reese Hoskins or any of the guys we thought would be a problem with the Phillies defense. It's just this is a whole Phillies thing. And that's kind of an entry point to sort of how disappointing the season has been so far for the Phillies. Castellanos has been okay, right? He's got five homers. He's been about league average. It's not it's not what you expect. It has made him, and you can you can quibble with the calculations if you want, a replacement level player because he's been an average hitter and a terrible defender, and that's not really valued. The thing that stands out to me that's kind of interesting is he's really getting attacked differently, right? If you go back over the last like five years um he's always seen more fastballs than any other pitch this year for the first time he's seen more breaking balls than he has fastballs why because he crushes fastballs you know, over the last four years he is a 624 slugging against fastballs it's top 10 in the league and on a totally unrelated note he has his lowest hard hit rate since 2015 he is getting attacked differently he needs to adjust and uh he's not even in the top 12 issues on this phillies team i don't think but you're not also giving them what you'd expect it's he's again he's he, to me he's in that Seager realm where it's just a little disappointing on offense. The problem is the defense. He's you know again he's you know he's he's negative three and outs above average, which for this part of this you know is a counting stat for you know four, four or five weeks into the season is bad. You also have Kyle Schwarber who's minus two and outs above average, and they have to as we've discussed because Bryce Harper's DHing, they both have to play every day, and so the Phillies defense is just bad. They are negative seventeen outs above average as a team, which is. 29th out of 30 teams in the majors as you said last night these guys weren't involved in that play but the defense is bad Alex Bohm is the second worst defender in terms of that's above average in all of baseball in any position at minus eight so it's just the problem is that they were sort of like making this bet like oh we're just going to outscore teams it's going to be Schwarber and Castellanos so they're going to join Harper and the, the lineup can be tough but the defense is as many people expected is really is really biting them Yes, it's been a a tremendous issue. There's one other player we didn't get to yet. That is Trevor Story. We're going to dive into him and the rest of the Red Sox when we come back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Payoff good. Swing a high fly ball left field. Backing up Pollock. Backing up. Did he do it again? Yes, he did. Travis- 
nothing. He got him. He got him out of the breaking ball. That's what he did. 3-2 hanging hook. See a three-run Johnson. Tell me if there's anybody hotter in baseball than Trevor Story right oh, now. Oh, my goodness. Unbelievable. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. I don't know if you've noticed, but the Boston Red Sox, who were pretty much completely left for dead, have been playing pretty well lately. And a big part of that is Trevor Story, who, if you look at it, is actually about at his career average OPS+. plus. He's played 38 games with the Red Sox. I'd like you to split them in half, 19 games and 19 games. The first 19, zero home runs, 579 OPS, plenty of boos from the Fenway faithful. The most recent 19 games, eight home runs, a 906 OPS. He's even been better on defense. And there's a lot of reasons we can get into for that. But I do want you to remember, this is how janky his spring was. He didn't sign until March 23rd. Two days later, he had to leave camp for the birth of his first child, played his first game on March 29th. He got into only five spring training games. And then after the first two days of the regular season, he missed the next three games with what was termed a non-COVID illness. I cannot imagine what his life must have been like for those three weeks, but him getting off to a slow start is just maybe the least surprising thing I've ever seen. Um, I also enjoyed this, by the way. He is striking out more in his good half of the season than he was in his bad half of the season. It's funny how that works sometimes. He's a good example of like how it is. The season is still kind of early. Like if we if we had been done this segment a week ago, we probably would have been talking about him almost like we were talking. I was talking about Marcus Semyon before, and then last you know last Thursday night I think is when he had his his three homer game against the Mariners, and then he had five home runs over the weekend. And he's continued to hit. And the Red Sox have been winning. And it's a totally different, a totally different narrative. And now Trevor Story seems like a big part of what the Red Sox are doing. The Red Sox now are twenty and twenty-three, which is they have a better. And early in the season, run differentials can be weird, but it's crazy to think that they have a better run differential than the Blue Jays at this point, considering where like the narrative and the arc of this season. And it feels like they can. The Red Sox. I was ready to sort of give up on them, and you know, had you know JD Martinez trades in my head, but like. Given the way the White Sox are playing, which is like their competition for a wild card spot, I think that like they're in the mix. And I think that like this is kind of the team we expected. It's like, oh, they're going to score runs. And with because Trevor Story's good and he's going to join Bogart's endeavors, who've been good. And that's now that the formula is kind of working finally. Did you notice they turned their season around right about the time they called up Franchi Cordero? I don't think this is an, an accident, by the way. The, the other thing that stood out to me is um, if you look at Nick Pavetta, it doesn't seem that interesting, right? A 425 ERA is fine. But he made a big change in the middle of a start. I thought this was pretty interesting. So in his first three games, he got torched an ERA over 10, 10 strikeouts, nine walks. That's very bad. His next six games, his most recent six games, uh, 243 ERA and a 36 to 7 strikeout to walk, which is like a pretty big difference. So I actually went to go look and try to figure out what it was. And he made my life easy because he just said it. He went right out there and said it. He talked to Christopher Smith, who writes for MassLab.com. And he said, uh, after the second inning of that third game, so there was a game against Toronto on April 7th, five runs in the first two innings, and then two scoreless after that. He said, I've made mechanical changes I've been trying to search for for the past 15 or 20 games now, uh, days now, and just got my hands breaking in a better motion, got my arms circulating, and my velocity picked up. And it's true. He was 92-93 in the first two innings of that game, and he touched 96 afterwards. I don't think this makes him like the next ace or whatever, 
But I just find it really interesting that a player can do that in the middle of a game and then have it continue. Like, that's so cool and so difficult. And, you know, it's not just Trevor's story. It's also Nick Pavetta actually pitching. And if he can keep that up, at some point, maybe you'll actually get Chris Sale back. Uh, and then maybe maybe you're talking because Nathan Evaldi has not been that great. I don't trust anybody else on this pitching staff, really. So if Pavetta keeps this up, that is a pretty big deal. Yeah, I mean, they just need they just need some, like, decent starting pitching. And right now, I mean, Pavetta's been better than decent, but, like, even if he can just be, like, slightly above average Nick Pavetta, that's that's what they need because they're, they're, they're basically their, – their formula is passable starting pitching, we will outscore you, and hopefully our bullpen's good enough. Also, the defense is better. Remember last year, they were essentially the worst defense in baseball, minus 39 outs above average this year, minus one. So minus one doesn't sound great, but going from terrible to average is actually pretty good. Uh, a couple reasons why, right? Less Kyle Schwarber. Uh, J.D. Martinez, I didn't realize till today, has not played in the outfield yet. He's been completely a DH. Uh, more Jackie Bradley, who hasn't hit well, but he's a very good outfielder. More Trevor Story, you know, who has improved. Uh, they also have had internal improvements. Like Bobby Dahlbeck last year was a minus eight and plus one so far. Raphael Devers last year was a minus 13. He's a zero. And I know zero doesn't sound good, but it's average. When you have a pitching staff you don't trust, and I really don't trust that bullpen for like so many different reasons, uh, having defense behind them is helpful. So the Red Sox are on the way up. The Mariners are not. 18 and 27. 11 games out in the West. They are tied with Baltimore. Yes, the Orioles for the 26th best winning percentage in baseball. They actually started out pretty well. 11 and 6. The next day was April 27th. They are 7 and 21 since then. That is the worst record in baseball. Fangraphs playoff odds have them at a mere 5%. They've been outscored by 29 runs. Matt, I know neither you or I were really super in on them yet. Like I think we both agreed they were uh, trending in the right direction for like a year from now. But it really does feel like so many people got sucked up in the uh, we're going to wildly overperform our run differential last year and treat them like we're actually a 91 team. But it seemed pretty clear that's not true. And now uh, it's last place in a division with two pretty bad teams is a rough spot. Yeah, it's also pretty spot. I saw someone point this out like on Twitter. I forgot who it was. It's also pretty rough in the context of the offseason where like basically the A's essentially like, like we're, we're blowing it up. And the Mariners like went all in to win now, and the A's right now have a better record than the Mariners. It's just it's it's a bit rough, and I think you know a lot of attention. I saw this like there was a story the other day, and I'm curious for your take on this. There was a piece in the Athletic. Corey Brock, one of RollMLB.com colleagues, wrote it. And it was an interesting. It was an interesting piece, an interesting thought experiment. Basically, it's like he covers the Mariners now for the Athletic, and basically the premise was now we're starting to see the effects of the lost season. That like the development time in 2020 with no games for minor leaguers. We're starting to see it with like guys like Jared Kelnick, and there was some, another, another. I think uh, Cal Raleigh. And there was another Mariners player who's like who's really struggled in the major leagues. That they brought up and like there was Jerry Depoto saying like, "Yeah, this has definitely been a problem." And like, I'm not dismissing this as a possibility, but it also just seems awfully convenient for a team that's struggled to develop players even in normal times to suddenly like jump on this as an excuse. Yeah, I hesitate to have like a strong take given that I didn't see that article and I haven't looked into this extensively. But my inclination is to not buy it because I'm sure you can come up with tons of examples of other minor leaguers who missed that time and haven't struggled, like Jeremy Pena, for example. You know, plenty of guys like that. I also remember during that season, and obviously it wasn't great to not have minor league ball, like no question. 
But there are a number of examples of guys being like, you know, I really liked the uh, alternate site because I wasn't really worried about my batting average or my ERA or trying to get guys out. I could work on what I needed to work on without, you know, traveling on, you know, 12 hour bus rides, worried about losing my job. It was like, I can focus on an all intensive baseball camp. And I don't say that to say that should be the new normal going forward or anything, but there were definitely stories of guys saying like, that was a great season for them. So I'm, I am a little hesitant to put too much into that. When you break down what the Mariners are doing, did you realize this, this kind of blew me away. They have had the best hitting infield in baseball this year. If you look at weighted runs created plus um, Ty France, who was your guy last week, has been great. Eugenio Suarez has been pretty good. J.P. Crawford's been great. Everything else is kind of the problem, right? Every If you look at so I talked about the infield. If you look at everything else, catcher plus outfield plus DH, 22nd. But really, it's been the pitching, right? The seventh worst ERA, uh, the worst home runs per nine, the second lowest ground ball rate. We should say that Logan Gilbert's been pretty good. Paul Sewell's been good. Penn Murphy has been good. But everyone else has just been... Uh, Ray will be better, right? Robbie Ray will be better. I don't I don't know how they turn this around because I wasn't in on them in the first place. And nothing I've seen has changed my mind on that. And it's also I mean it's tough also because the Angels, you know, sort of secured a spot and they feel it's it's hard to see I wouldn't rule it out, but it's just hard to see them at this point jumping the Angels and now even the Red Sox and the maybe even the White Sox, who have issues of their own, but I still I think like better in aggregate. Than I do the Mariners. I mean, they're, they're the big guy they acquired this offseason. Their biggest acquisition on the offensive side was Jesse Winker, who's been pretty bad. Although it's almost been balanced out by how surprisingly good JP Crawford has been. So it's like, yeah, you think Winker would be better, but there's no way you expected JP Crawford to be this good. So while you want Winker to turn it around, you have to sort of assume that, that that's probably going to come with some JP Crawford regression. It'll probably even out in terms of their bottom line. I should also say that uh, Julio Rodriguez got off to a pretty rough start, and he's been much better lately. Um, Mitch Hanniger's out again, which seems to be a like a yearly occurrence. I don't know. I'm I'm low on them, but I was always low on them, and I feel badly for Mariners fans who've been waiting literal decades for a playoff spot. All right, our third topic is what happened to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. It's I think a measure of the respect we have for him that he currently has a 136 OPS plus. He's 36 percent better than league average, and we're all out here going, oh no. What's wrong? What's wrong with them? But he's had a really weird season. Between May 6th and May 24th, he did not have an extra base hit. Do you know how many players in baseball had one extra base hit during his power outage? 360. And this is Vlad Jr. we're talking about. And so, of course, as these things go, I said, well, hey, I'm going to write about this. I'm going to write about it on Tuesday, and I'm going to finish writing it while I'm watching Blue Jays play the Cardinals. And what does Vlad do? He goes out and crushes a home run and ends that streak. But I was happy about that because... It showed what was happening, right? He's not striking out more. He's actually striking out less, making tons of contact. He's not hitting it any less hard. He's hitting it as hard as ever. He's still hitting it extremely hard, and he's hitting it hard often. As you might expect, the problem is he's hitting it into the ground a lot, and that is partially because of the way he's being pitched. Uh, He is not getting four-seamers in the zone. He's getting fewer four-seamers thrown harder, and he's getting a lot more breaking stuff thrown low and away, which he is so good that he can make contact with when he probably shouldn't, because then that goes for ground balls. And so I was watching the game on Tuesday night, and I thought the last two plate appearances were really instructive, right? His second to last plate appearance, he gets a sinker. And if you watch it, uh, I don't remember if it was Molina catching for the Cardinals or not, but whoever the Cardinals catcher was, he set up low. Pitcher missed his spot. It was belt high. Vlad crushed it about 900 feet. The very next plate appearance, that same sinker came in, and it was low, and Vlad hit it really hard, 108 miles an hour, right to Nolan Arenado for a ground out. It's like the book is out, 
pitchers are just not going to let him go crush them and it's on him to to go back and fix it like it's the a really cool cat and mouse game that's going on behind the game here it's kind of weird to think about but the first couple years of his career he felt like a little bit of a disappointment like he was pretty good but you know he came up and was like oh this is like the you know the best hitting prospect in ages and you you expect him to sort of take the league by storm it's like his first year he comes up in like you know like maybe late may and he has a 772 OPS with 15 home runs, which is great for a rookie, but it's just like, it's not what we expected. And then the pandemic season, 791 OPS, it was good. And then last year, as we saw the guy that like we kind of expected all along, which was top five hitters in the league. But those first two years, that's what was happening. Like he was hitting the ball hard. He was one of the highest hard hit rates in the league, but like a, lot, a high ground ball rate. Last year, he was able to sort of elevate again. And now the, the, the sort of, as you said, the league is kind of adjusted back to him and he needs to kind of figure it out. He's been good. It's just that I think that after last year, there was this expectation of like, okay, this is, you know, last year he had 48 home runs. It was like, what's he going to do this year? Can he get 50? Is he going to, you know, could he compete for a triple crown, which, you know, is, is fun. Whatever, whatever you think of it as an analytical stat, it's like a fun thing, which he almost did last year. And it's been just more, oh, he's a really good hitter, but not the super duper star that we kind of expect him to be at all times. No, no, I'd say I disagree. I, I have not changed my opinion of him at all. I still think he will be the superstar, right? Because listen, he's he's 23. Like I said, the quote unquote bad Vlad is still having a pretty good season and the contact skills are there. He's crushing it. I think he is so talented that he will force them to adjust back. Yeah, no, I, to be clear, I wasn't, I, I, I didn't mean to imply that like I, I'm down, like I think I'm out on him or anything, but just the, the my, my point is that like the production has not been what it was, but it doesn't mean it can't be. And it doesn't mean he hasn't been still a valuable player to the Blue Jays. Still, there's also the fact of just like the offensive environment has changed and mentally adjusting that is also a challenge because there are certain things that like, it's still hard to wrap our heads around like what, you know, a 130 OPS plus means because, you know, it means 80 fewer points of, of OPS in some cases. Right, exactly. He, he is still having a good season. At the same time, he is 200 points in OPS down from what he was last year. We will take a quick break on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, and we will finish off with guys you should be talking about more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrello and Matt Myers. We're going to get into our favorite topic, guys, you should talk about more. I'm still talking about Vinny Pasquantino, who has not yet been called up, even though he's crushing home runs left and right. But I've got a new guy this week. My guy turns 35 years old in October, Yadiel Hernandez. That's right, Yadiel Hernandez, outfield for the Nationals. If you haven't heard of him, makes perfect sense because he has not been playing in the big leagues that long despite his age. He's a really interesting story. First of all, he's hitting well, 308. 349, 450. He's got an OPS plus of 134. He's 34. He turns 35 in October. The reason you haven't heard of him is because he only made his debut in 2020, one month before his 33rd birthday. Pretty advanced age. Why did it take so long? Well, he was born in Cuba in 1987, and he spent most of his 20s playing in the Cuban League. 
from 2009 to 2015 playing for Matanzas. He had a 450 OBP. In 2015, he was in North Carolina with the Cuban team and he defected. For reasons I couldn't quite uh, figure out, he did not sign for more than a year and only for $200,000, which is a pretty low bonus when you kind of consider the, you know, Yasiel Puig's and Jose Braves and other big ticket Cuban players. He played in the minors for the Nationals 2017 to 2020 and tore it up 301, 383, 506. When he got called up in 2020, I like, got a kick out of this. Ironically, it was for the exact same reason that Juan Soto had been called up two years earlier. Howie Kendrick hurt himself. Howie Kendrick playing a huge role in the history of the Washington Nationals. So he's not fast, 15th percentile sprint speed. He's not actually a very good outfielder, but man, can this guy hit fastballs. Last year, he slugged 504 against fastballs. This year, he's slugging 542 against fastballs. A combined average in those years, about 350. And again, he's old. He's going to be 35 soon. And so the reason I wanted to talk about him is partially because of that history. It's really interesting. But also because, you know, you don't come across many veteran players like this who are still making the minimum because he just has no service time. And the Nationals are not going to be good until he's, I don't know, 40. So maybe he's going to be an interesting trade deadline bat. Like, couldn't just see a team like the Blue Jays, all the White Sox would be perfect, who'd be like, I need a left-handed hitter who can stand in the outfield or play DH, pound me some fastballs off the bench in a big spot. Yadiel Hernandez could be that guy. So when you see him in a playoff race and wonder, who is this guy? Well, now you know. He came from Washington. Yeah, I mean, now that the, the Red Sox seem to be playing their way back into the race, the amount of interesting bats available at the deadline is going to be pretty slim. And the Nationals are one place you look because Hernandez is, you know, he's only, as you said, he's only got like one plus year of service time. But because of his age, you have to think they'd run, try and trade him because he would also would have valued whatever team he gets for the next few years. They also have Josh Bell, who's going to be a free agent. He's been playing well. Nelson Cruz, although he has not been playing well. But, like, this is definitely an interesting name at the trade deadline. The Nationals will be a team to watch because otherwise their roster is pretty um, – it's it's kind of the worst kind of bad team because, yes, they've got one Soto, but it's a lot of just, like, retreads and old guys. So it's not even like, oh, we're watching the next generation. You know, they're they're starting D-Strange Gordon and Michael Franco and – and Cesar Hernandez, who I like, but like, you know, what, what's going on? So the, the team needs a needs a needs a facelift badly. The guy, my guy for this week, is also on a team that is sitting in the cellar, and I'm tempting fate by talking about him because he's going to start tonight against the Cleveland Guardians. <laughs> but uh, he deserves a tout because not much is going right for the Tigers this season, but Tariq Skubal is going very right for the Tigers. The left-handed pitcher for Detroit, who I teased earlier, is second only to Kevin Gossman in Fangraph's version of War Among Starting Pitchers, which kind of blows my mind. He has a 2.22 ERA and a 2.48 expected ERA. And as pointed out by our good friend Andrew Simon, he has that ERA despite having the worst uh, defense behind him of any pitcher in baseball at outs above average with a negative eight outs above average behind him this season in baseball. So, like, he's probably even better. His ERA is probably better than it's probably worse than it should be based on the defense he's had behind him. Now, some people might remember that Scooble came, like there was a few years ago, 20, go, going into, I guess, the 2019 season, or going into the 2020 season, they had this, like, tr- the Tigers had this trio of pitching prospects, Casey Mize, the number one, the number one overall pick a few years ago, Matt Manning, a first-round pick, and Scooble, they were their, like, one, like, two, three, and five prospects. Mize and Manning have been horrible disappointments. Scooble finally seems to be living up to the living up to the, the promise he showed. Back in, in 2019 in AA, he... He struck out like 82 players in 41 innings. So like he had this like crazy strikeout rate of like 17 for nine. But he seems to have made some changes this year. Um, he's lowered his arm angle. 
and he's his changeup is different. So he's 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 big, got a lot more out of his four seam fastball, and he's getting a lot more out of his changeup. And it's like he's a different pitcher, and it's exciting to see the Tigers have some promise this season because man, not much has gone right. We mentioned Bias has been bad. Spencer Torkelson, um, their 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 big rookie, just hasn't been very good. So this has probably been the best success story for the Tigers this year. It's it's been pretty slim pickings, but at least it, it seems like they may, they might be onto something with Scoople. It's yeah, the pitching stuff especially because Casey Mize has been hurt. I have a ton of questions about Matt Manning and whether he can succeed in the big. So it's really cool to see him change. He's also throwing his fastball and his slider just about the exact amount. You know, he's last year he was a four seamer first, so he's made some changes. So that's cool. Before we uh, say goodbye for the podcast, I wanted to highlight. Uh, quick new tool that's up at Baseball Savant. You can look at pitcher tempo. Uh, how much time is the pitcher taking between pitches? Who's the fastest? Who's the slowest? If you go back historically, unsurprisingly, Mark Burley is the fastest and Pedro Baez is near the bottom. But what's interesting about it is you can compare what they're doing with the bases empty as compared to with runners on. I think that's going to be a really interesting topic as uh, a potential pitch clock, which we talked about last week, possibly comes to the majors at some point in the next few years. Baseball Savant, please go check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Conventions podcast. See you next week.